We just finished running our mini-series Herb on the history and impacts of the corporate free speech movement. At the end of the month, we'll get into the other side of that coin, the increasing criminalization of individual free speech, or what I like to call real free speech. In the U.S. and in countries around the world, there has been a major backlash to environmental and climate protests over the last few years. And it's not just coming out of nowhere. Today, we're bringing you the first of a two-part episode from the folks at Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. Outside In is a great show. They do an amazing job covering all sorts of environmental and climate issues. And in this two-part episode, they look at what happened at Standing Rock in the U.S. and how it kicked off a major backlash that has included legislation criminalizing protest near pipelines. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's coming up after a quick break. And then don't forget to subscribe so you'll start to get the episodes from our season on this subject, The Real Free Speech Threat, coming August 29th. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. There are certain moments that become part of our collective story. Flashpoints. When our past and our future feel like they're talking to each other. Standing Rock was a moment like that. The smell of fire, of campfire, permeated the entire Ocheti Shagoi camp. That's Chase Iron Eyes. He's an attorney and a member of the Oglala Sioux and Standing Rock Nations. Though he says those are colonial names. Yeah, I, I would say Ocheti Shakomi, or Sioux Nation. The protesters, including Chase, first gathered in 2016. They were there to stop Dapple, the Dakota Access Pipeline, because pipelines spill, because millions of people depend on the integrity of the Missouri River, because even when a pipeline works as intended, the result is more greenhouse gas emissions. But the main reason why Chase and members of the Sioux Nation were camping at Standing Rock was they were defending their sovereignty. We had been disallowed from expressing our sovereign identity in that territory since 1889. That's when the state of North Dakota and South Dakota were admitted to statehood. It was the largest gathering of indigenous people in recent history. Folks came from all over. Tens of thousands of people cycled through that camp 
This is why one elder called it an ongoing international spiritual monument. Singing. You could hear songs, not just from our people. You could hear Coast Salish, Pacific Northwest. People that, that come from the ocean, that, have, that are in relation to that ecosystem. You could hear people from the Southwest uh, who are in relation to, to corn. You could hear people from the Three Fires Confederacy and the Six Nations Confederacy. And American people were there. People lived at the camp for 10 months. They stood in the way of construction. They broke blockades and security barriers. They chained themselves to construction equipment. Dapple security responded with guard dogs who bit protesters. All of the times that everyone was maced with who knows what chemicals. Police with tear gas and fire hoses. Spraying hundreds of people in sub-freezing temperatures. Helicopters in the night aiming floodlights on the camp. Shining on you, telling you, you are being surveilled. All of this may sound pretty familiar. Even in the midst of a wild presidential election, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests made international headlines. But there is a story here that a lot of people don't know about what made the Standing Rock protests so influential and about how some legislators and fossil fuel companies are trying to make sure it never happens again. After the protest ended, internal documents from a private security company named Tiger Swan were leaked to the press. The pipeline company hired them to infiltrate the camp and gather intelligence on protesters. Chase Iron Eyes and his wife and daughter are mentioned in those documents. And Tiger Swan characterized the movement in a very particular way. Called us, American Indians, we American Indians, religiously driven indigenous jihadists. Jihadists. Insurgents. Essentially, as terrorists. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. The events at and around Standing Rock were a turning point for environmental protest. In the years since, a wave of legislation has swept across the country, criminalizing acts of protest, especially near pipelines. So what's happening? When is environmental protest considered acceptable? And when is it seen as a threat? There are many who would say that destroying uh, private property like this is violence. Your response to this? I completely disagree. This is the first of two episodes on the changing stakes of environmental protest. How we define protest and how we define terrorism. Who is considered a terrorist and who is considered a patriot is relative. It's a matter of who can tell their story and who can portray the other as criminal.
Producer Justine Paradise takes it from here. Most protests don't end in a dramatic face-off with the police, with attack dogs and pepper spray. Actually, most protests are extremely straightforward and sometimes even boring. This is Leslie Wood. She researches the dynamics between policing and social movements. Um, But some protests are not. The activists at Standing Rock describe the protest as a nonviolent, direct action. And historically, direct action can mean a lot of things. It can be something like, if we want better health care, we have to set up clinics. It's saying we're not going to ask for the government to solve the problems. We're going to do it ourselves. Direct action as a strategy often comes after trying to participate in the democratic process and finding it unresponsive. And it might involve acts of civil disobedience, deliberately breaking a law, like stopping traffic. Or maybe because the law itself is unjust, like sitting at a segregated lunch counter. Speaking generically, that's very different from a permitted, police-protected protest, the kind Leslie calls marching in a circle. There's no political threat posed by them. The idea that they have a right to protest, but only in certain ways, doesn't really understand what protest is trying to do, which is, on the fundamental, say the system isn't working, right? to impose some sort of potential cost to the system. Which brings us back to North Dakota. It was just a completely sort of um, bubble-shattering experience. That's Tokata Iron Eyes. Earlier we heard from her dad, Chase. Because I'd, I'd firstly never been exposed to that many people from different places all at once. And also just like the number of different Native peoples who gathered in protest and in resistance is something that like hadn't been seen in hundreds of years. Tokata is Hunkpapa and Oglala Lakota, and she's originally from the Standing Rock Reservation. She was 12, 13 years old during the Standing Rock gathering. Did, did you watch your mom get arrested? Yes, I did. I held her purse. <laughs> um, she stood in front of one of these giant int- equipment trucks on the road um, and was just like, I'm not moving and you're not getting any closer to where you're trying to go. Um and she was arrested, and that sparked this sort of moment of, of other Native women also then, like, climbing over the fences and going to the construction sites and um, standing in front of the, the other tractors there. When my mom was arrested and taken away, I, I, I just remember feeling like, oh, this is an incredibly different ball game than what I was imagining. This is real. And these people, like, it is their job to make sure that we do not get what we want. The Dakota Access Pipeline protests didn't have a clear leader. The movement was decentralized. A broad coalition of tribes, thousands of U.S. military veterans, hundreds of clergy, and people from all over the world. And in those first months, they came there on the invitation of the Ocheti Shakowi. The rules of the camp were no drugs, no alcohol, no guns. I remember that first meeting, um, and I remember 
human beings, concerned people gathering to decide how, how do we engage in a David versus Goliath battle. When Chase Ironize and others on the Standing Rock Reservation, like LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, Joy Braun, and more, when they first heard about energy transfer partners and the plan to run the pipeline just two miles from the reservation, they got together to figure out what to do. And tensions were already high. When you're native, when you're indigenous, you're born into a war. The Indian wars have never ended. Take a look around us. There's half of our lands are still owned by settlers that are trying to diminish tribal sovereign capacity. From one point of view, we might view the events that took place in North Dakota as a protest. But from another, the encampment at Standing Rock was just the latest action in centuries of continuous indigenous resistance. The latest in a conflict marked by broken treaties and all-out war, the effects of which are ongoing. Most American people don't know that they're participating in the other side of that dynamic. A conflict that includes Native children taken from their communities and forced into residential schools, which includes thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women. From that perspective, peaceful protest of the Dakota Access Pipeline was not a given. Because, uh, you know, we've, we've always defended ourselves by any and all means necessary. These same forces came to our homelands in the mid-1800s to do the same thing, to build what is now called critical national infrastructure, the railroads which were trespassing in our lands. This is why we defeated the United States military multiple times in our country. This is why, uh, you know, Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer was killed in battle at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And why Red Cloud and Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and several others uh, chose to defend our nation against an ongoing present-day criminal and illegal occupation. That's how we see the state of South Dakota. At those early gatherings, when they were deciding what to do about Dapple in this David versus Goliath fight, they didn't know what approach they'd take. And when Chase told me about this strategy session, he brought up another moment of resistance. A moment that happened at Wounded Knee, South Dakota. That's a long story. That long story? It's the story of the American Indian Movement, or AIM. This was a Native movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And this one was armed. Frustrated over high unemployment, the violation of treaty rights, and life more generally as dictated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, a group of indigenous activists took action. In 1969, they took a chartered boat to the island of Alcatraz and occupied the empty prison there for 19 months. At one point, there were more than 400 people there. They made decisions by unanimous consent, 
There was a daycare and a school. We, uh, the Native Americans, reclaimed this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and hereby offer the following treaty. Later, a caravan of AIM activists traveled to Washington, D.C., a journey they called the Trail of Broken Treaties. And then they occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices for weeks. Anybody here from AIM? They were demanding millions of acres of land back and the protection of religious freedom, among other things. Is everybody happy? And finally, when AIM members seized control of Wounded Knee, South Dakota in 1973, it turned into a 71-day FBI siege that ended in a shootout at the Pine Ridge Reservation, the same reservation where Chase and Tokata live today. People died on both sides of this conflict, two FBI agents and three Native people. Another, Leonard Peltier, is still in prison for those actions today. But when Tokata talks about this time, she does mention those consequences. But she also points out that AIM's actions resulted in long overdue changes. The progress that AIM was able to make in its time was huge and was monumental, right? When AIM came to power, the our religion as Native Americans was still outlawed. Um, And so the Religious Freedom Act was signed. Only Natives took up armed resistance to the American government. Um, And the Indian Child Welfare Act was also passed as a result of, of that sort of work. So again, peaceful protests at Standing Rock was not a given. They could have chosen the same tactics used at the occupation of Wounded Knee. Standing Rock was a nonviolent direct action and there was a pipeline approved. The American Indian movement was an armed opposition and got several different laws passed by Congress. But ultimately, they chose to go down a different path. We conducted a ceremony to seek guidance. And the instructions were given inside those ceremonies to not be violent against other human beings. And that, that, that was very, it was very, really smart because it allowed a shift in consciousness. We were able to form these alliances that prior to that would not have been able to be formed. But there's a distinction here. They'd committed to peaceful, prayerful protest, meaning no violence against people. Violence against property is not, is not violence to us. You can't be violent towards a piece of plastic. You can't be violent towards a piece of equipment. You can be violent towards human beings. To be clear, neither Chase nor Tokata said they went any further than what the state of North Dakota would consider trespass. The main point and power here was the occupation of the land itself. But others did take things further. On the evening of Donald Trump's election, two people, Ruby Montoya and Jessica Reznicek, snuck onto a Dapple construction site. As they explained months later to Amy Goodman in an interview for Democracy Now!, they filled coffee canisters with rags soaked with motor oil and gasoline and put them inside heavy machinery at a Dapple site. This is Ruby Montoya speaking. 
We place those coffee canisters on the inside of the cabs of these heavy machinery and we pierce those coffee canisters so that the flammable liquids would spread. We then lit matches and uh, in efforts to make those machines obsolete. Jessica Resenchek had been an activist in places like Occupy Wall Street and in Israel, protecting the Palestinian olive harvest. Ruby Montoya is a former preschool teacher. Over the next few months, they learned to use welding torches. Using kits they bought at Home Depot, they visited sites along Dapple's route and burned through empty steel pipeline valves. Each action took them about seven minutes. Sometimes they worked in broad daylight. They did this until they ran out of supplies. And then they returned to arson, damaging more valves, plus electrical units and heavy equipment. According to their statement, they think they delayed construction of the pipeline for weeks. Their last act of sabotage was in May 2017, when, burning through a pipeline valve they thought was empty, they discovered that oil was actually already flowing through it. They publicly confessed to these actions in July 2017, reading a joint statement out loud at a press conference. They explained how and why they did this, and how others could do the same. We are speaking publicly to empower others to act boldly, with purity of heart, to dismantle the infrastructures which deny us our rights to water, land, and liberty. We as civilians have seen the repeated... Here's another clip from their interview on Democracy Now! We acted after having exhausted all other avenues of political process and uh, resistance to this petroleum pipeline that, to my knowledge, is... The actions of Ruby Montoya and Jessica Reznicek are one example discussed in a book you might have heard of, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, by the Swedish scholar Andreas Malm. There's also a movie based on the book, just released earlier this spring. The core argument of How to Blow Up a Pipeline is, is it time for the climate movement to move beyond, quote-unquote, peaceful protest? Because the climate movement has tried to make change for decades. It's tried sit-ins, school strikes, marches, blockades, boycotts, campaigns for divestment and legislation and treaties. But emissions relentlessly continue to grow. Andreas Malm argues that escalating to strategic property sabotage is the natural next step, a tried-and-true technique that lots of other successful movements have used after failing to get results from other methods. Movements which sought to change things on a massive structural level, like apartheid in South Africa, Jim Crow, and the suffragette movement. Mom argues that some element of property destruction has always been essential to bringing down the, quote, seemingly invincible. But property destruction also comes with substantial risks, a PR risk for the movement, for one. Just like police brutality during the civil rights era helped build outrage on the part of the general public, property destruction can turn people against a cause they might otherwise support. Another risk is for the activists. It could dramatically up the chances you'll wind up in prison. In the United States, there's a significant recent example which might come to mind. The Earth Liberation Front, or the ELF. In the 90s and 2000s, 
the ELF used property destruction as their main technique. They set ski lodges on fire in Colorado because the resort was expanding into endangered lynx habitat. They blew up logging and construction equipment, plus car dealerships, farms, laboratories, and even homes. By design, the ELF never killed anyone. But they were labeled as eco-terrorists regardless. And today, a lot of environmentalists are quick to distance themselves from those methods. So, is property destruction or sabotage a form of violence or a form of civil disobedience? Is it the work of terrorists or a tool for activists? A lot hinges on those questions. On Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman actually asked this question directly of the two activists who sabotaged Apple sites. Now, Jessica Resnicek, uh, there are many who would say that destroying uh, private property like this is violence. Your response to this? I completely disagree. Um, I think that this, the, the, the oil being taken out of the ground and the machinery that, that does it and the infrastructure which supports it, that th this is violent. Um, this is these, these tools and these mechanisms that industry and corporate, uh, corporate power and, and government power and we're all colluded together and to create. Uh, th this is destructive. This is violent, and it needs to be stopped. And um, and uh, we never at all threatened human life. Uh, we never at all act. And actually, we were we uh, we're, we're acting in an effort to save human life, to save our planet to save our resources. Um, and, uh, and nothing at any point was ever done by Ruby nor I, and an, a, anything outside of peaceful, uh, deliberate, and steady, loving hands. In How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Andreas Malm argues that property sabotage, even if it's viewed by some as extreme, can have another indirect effect. The actions of a, quote, radical flank can sometimes change how other parts of the movement are seen. Quote, without Malcolm X, there might not have been a Martin Luther King, and vice versa, he writes. Critics of the book have called his argument frustrating and reckless, saying that Malm rehashes the ideas of others, employs selective examples, and especially that he downplays possible repercussions of property sabotage, that activists can get sued or imprisoned, movements can get delayed or squashed. And the further a person is willing to go, the harder law enforcement may crack down. As for Ruby Montoya and Jessica Resnicek, in the eyes of the state, they aren't activists. They're terrorists. In addition to paying $3 million in damages to energy transfer partners, they were both convicted of, quote, conspiracy to damage an energy facility. Both sentences included a terrorism enhancement, essentially doubling their time in prison. Eight years for Jessica Resnicek, six for Ruby Montoya. That's essentially the same thing that happened to many members of the ELF years earlier. Beyond Ruby and Jessica, over the course of the protest, hundreds of people were also arrested for lesser charges. Chase Iron Eyes, the Ocheti Shakowi Sioux Nation lawyer, he was arrested and charged with, quote, felony to incite a riot in 2017. And on the night he was arrested, as he remembers it, security forces said to him, quote, 
Chase, we know you are responsible for this. We want you to call all of them off that hill. And he replied, quote, You guys have been looking for one chief for 500 years. There is no one chief. You could argue that the Standing Rock protest didn't work. A victory for the anti-pipeline activists in the final days of the Obama administration was immediately overturned by executive order once Trump took office. But that's not the whole picture. Standing Rock got global attention. It made notions of indigenous sovereignty very visible. Ideas like protecting sacred sites and the land back movement have become much more mainstream. Tokata iron eyes again. Those became like national conversations rather than just indigenous conversations. Um, and, and that's huge. And I think that those are all sort of consequences and attributes of what Standing Rock has done at a global level. And that's not just the takeaway from activists. Other pipeline protests have since taken cues from the encampment. Tiger Swan, the private security group hired to infiltrate the protest camps, they called it the Standing Rock Effect. Protests involving or led by indigenous groups have helped delay or even cancel fossil fuel projects across the US and Canada. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline, the Tech Frontier Tar Sands Oil Mine, Line 3, Keystone XL. According to one analysis, the resistance to DAPL cost the pipeline company billions of dollars in losses. That really got the attention of the oil industry, that unprecedented level of national resistance, coordination, the coalitions that were formed to resist the Dakota Access Pipeline, scared the hell out of the oil companies. And those companies did not sit idly by. That's after the break. February 22, 2017, on state and federal orders, most of the last protesters left the gathering at Standing Rock, their procession accompanied by drums and songs and prayer. Earlier that same day, 900 miles and three states away, state officials had gathered to debate a bill in the Oklahoma State House. Mr. Chairman, you're recognized to present your bill, sir. Thank you, Representative. And members, we do have two proposed committee subs. I would ask that the second version, uh, the one filed yesterday... That's Oklahoma House Rep. Scott Biggs. Here he's presenting a draft version of a bill he's sponsoring. A bill which would enact stiffer penalties, hefty fines and felony charges, for vandalizing or trespassing with intent to tamper with, quote, critical infrastructure. Uh, this issue has definitely risen to the level of concern here in Oklahoma, uh, giving our state status as a, an oil producer, energy producer, and what's going on in other states. So, uh, we took In defining critical infrastructure, the bill included a long list of examples that could qualify, including a petroleum refinery, a railroad, a telephone pole. And there's nothing secret about what motivated him to drop this bill. Was it just the, the, the pipeline incident or 
I, I don't think they did damage to property, but obviously they're... I'm pretty sure they did a whole lot of damage to property in North Dakota. It's because of Standing Rock. Okay, is and that what please, we're talking yes, about? Yes, please join. If you, okay. if you want to learn more, we actually have a, a meeting here at 4 o'clock today with some individuals uh, from North Dakota that are here to talk to us, uh, talk to the industry about what they're having to deal with the aftermath. Um, but yes, that is the, the main reason behind this. This is one of two such bills passed in Oklahoma in 2017. And they're important because together, they became the model for a lot of the legislation that's followed. Much of it pushed by one group in particular. I came at this issue because of one organization. That's the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. This is Connor Gibson. He's an opposition researcher, which means in his case that he studies the influence of money especially fossil fuel money, on politics. Which, uh, you know, according to my own ideology, is the root of most of our problems. So ALEC. ALEC is a right-wing organization, a coalition of state legislators and corporate lobbyists. One of the main things it does is draft model laws for legislators. For instance, stand-your-ground laws. You know, George Zimmerman's defense for killing Trayvon Martin. ALEC helps spread them. ALEC has a model bill that allows companies to withhold what chemicals are in fracking liquid. ALEC is also behind a number of state-level laws, such as so-called voter ID laws, various schemes to disenfranchise voters. And again, ALEC's members include both elected state officials and companies like Coke Industries, Marathon Petroleum, and until recently, ExxonMobil. Connor actually used to crash their annual meetings when he worked for Greenpeace. It is exactly what you would picture. It's a bunch of legislators, white old men, chomping on cigars with a bunch of lobbyists. By the way, we reached out to Alec multiple times for this story. They did respond over email, but didn't answer all my questions. More on that later. After the two Oklahoma bills passed in 2017, Alec drafted their own model legislation and called it the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act, based on those two bills. And along with the bill, they sent a letter for legislators, which the Huffington Post later obtained and published. The letter urged state lawmakers to support the model bill, citing examples of deliberate attacks to infrastructure, including recent, quote, coordinated physical attacks to DAPL using blowtorches. The letter was signed by Marathon Petroleum Corporation and four industry groups, including the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers and the American Gas Association. So, the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act became the official ALEC model policy, and it spread to Iowa, Louisiana, Montana, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, Texas, Ohio, and so on. So we've seen we've seen successive waves of these bills, um, often in direct response to protest movements. This is Ellie Page. She's a senior legal advisor with the ICNL the International Center for Nonprofit Law. Following Standing Rock, we've seen states introduce these laws specifically targeting environmental protesters who are looking to demonstrate against gas and oil pipelines. This is the bread and butter ALEC model template. Connor also keeps tabs on who shows up to lobby for these bills as they move through state legislatures. And no surprise, it's often companies like Coke Industries, ExxonMobil, and the company behind Dapple, energy transfer partners. All this to say, the fossil fuel industry has demonstrated its support for this legislation. 
In the past six years, some version of it has passed in 18 states. We started monitoring this trend, and it has proven to be a very durable, um, a durable trend, unfortunately. To be clear, drafting model bills for lawmakers, that is a tool used across the political spectrum. Democrats also sponsor bills created this way. But anyway, when it comes to this particular pattern, Connor and Ellie both say that these bills, the ones focused on infrastructure and other more general ones, they're designed to chill protest. They do that by increasing penalties for things like blocking traffic. Maybe they redefine misdemeanors like trespassing to more serious felonies. They might increase minimum sentences or ratchet up fines. They're trying to give police more excuses to arrest people um, and deter people from protesting in the first place by making sure people are aware that the penalties keep going up and up and up for things that previously were not that legally risky, kind of basic First Amendment freedom of expression protest. The laws are also typically broad and vague, which not only gives police and prosecutors a lot of discretion in terms of enforcing the law. It allows them to apply the law selectively based on um, for instance, whether they agree with the political message that the protesters are, are sending um, or based on some other uh, bias. But Ellie argues that these laws don't even have to be enforced to keep people away from protests. If folks are not sure what the law means or how it's going to be applied, they are going to think twice about maybe participating in a protest where they might get caught up under such a law. These laws can also operate through civil penalties, not just prison sentences for those directly involved, but financial liability for those associated. Maybe you're familiar with RICO laws, laws passed in the 1970s, which instituted fines and penalties for people working in conspiracy with organized crime, racketeering. This is the perversion of laws that were intended to go after the mafia, um, but being used to go after environmentalist groups. And that's a, that's a really widespread trend that we've seen. A bill proposed in Idaho earlier this year, for example, took this approach. Let's say the Nature Conservancy is affiliated with somebody who decided to go uh, protest an oil pipeline, and they were arrested in Idaho under the auspices of this bill language. Um, the Nature Conservancy could be charged $100,000 just for being affiliated with that person. And the, the definitions of what constitutes such affiliation is fairly broad. The language in the bill says aids, abets, solicits, compensates, hires, conspires with, commands, or procures someone. This could create a situation where an environmental organization might tell their staff and their volunteers, hey, don't go to that protest because we could be fined. $100,000 if that bill had passed in Idaho, or a million dollars if you're in Oklahoma. That said, I don't think that's happened yet. Um, and I hope it wouldn't. I I think there is some indication that prosecutors have seen that these laws are on very shaky ground, constitutionally speaking. This wave of critical infrastructure bills, they're just one part of a larger pattern of anti-protest legislation beyond pipelines. There are new laws that increase penalties for wearing masks during protests, that grant certain immunities to drivers who hit protesters with their cars. That also includes this wave of backlash against Black Lives Matter, and the police and prosecutors groups who are lobbying to make it much easier to be arrested for so-called rioting 
um, where the definition of riot keeps getting easier and easier and easier to trigger. Even with all this context, there are folks that might say, like, yeah, it should be illegal to vandalize someone's property. It should be illegal to trespass. But those things are already illegal. There is no state that forgot to make it illegal to hurt another person. There is no state that forgot to make it illegal to destroy people's property. There's no state that forgot to make it illegal to trespass. So the legislation is really just upping the ante on peaceful protest activity. That is the main thing they're trying to restrict. Again, we reached out to Alec and asked them how they'd respond to this assertion, that these bills are designed to chill and criminalize protest. They said, quote, the ALEC model bill was finalized in 2018 and designed to address criminal activities, trespassing, and property damage. They didn't respond to any of my other specific questions, although they also sent us links to blog posts which argue, quote, Some high-profile media outlets, such as the Los Angeles Times, have recently leveled false claims against ALEC, accusing our organization of engaging in a nefarious plan to infringe upon the right to free speech through the promotion of critical infrastructure protection legislation. This could not be further from the truth. We can't know if those Oklahoma bills and the ALEC model bill that came after would have been created even without direct blowtorch attacks on the Dakota Access Pipeline. But ALEC and others have pointed towards the property destruction, including the blowtorches, as rhetoric to help make their case. And now formerly mundane forms of civil disobedience could be met with stiffer penalties and harsher prison sentences. Maybe this is exactly the kind of backlash critics of how to blow up a pipeline have talked about. Or it could be exactly where things were headed anyway. Police militarization is on the rise. And it was never just the radical fringe that risked being labeled as, quote, an enemy of the state. Who is considered a terrorist and who is considered a patriot is relative. It's a matter of who can tell their story and who can portray the other as criminal. But the charge of terrorism, that does take it to a whole new level. One bill proposed in West Virginia this year would have created a new offense, a quote, terrorist violent mass action, meaning violent protests and riots which appear intended to coerce or intimidate groups, governments, and societies. Under this bill, potentially, a nonprofit group involved in organizing or supporting such a protest could be deemed a terrorist organization. That bill didn't pass this year. But these new laws that criminalize acts of protest and anti-terrorism laws that are already on the books, it's all starting to dovetail. And there's one place where all this is coming together. You could call it a perfect storm. When I saw the domestic terrorism charges in Cop City, I immediately felt this wave of kind of a flashback, like it was a, a dangerous escalation. There's like these blacked out officers coming from the woods, you know, with a rifle in your face and you're just, there's no training for that. It's, it's terrifying. It's hard to express how dangerous this time is especially once the domestic terrorism charges, you know, came into the picture. I remember watching a, I believe a state trooper with an automatic weapon, and he was walking slowly toward the bounce house. That's next time on Outside In.
want to check out what the landscape is like for protest in your state, go to the U.S. Protest Law Tracker on the ICNL website. You can look up your state or type of bill and see what laws have been proposed, failed, or enacted. If you're interested in learning more about the Earth Liberation Front, we recommend a podcast called Burn Wild. The reporter, Leah Satilli, has covered extremism for years. In this series, she talks to former ELF members and the FBI agents who investigated them. And she really gets into the question of how far is too far to save the planet? We'll link to both the ICNL tracker and Burn Wild in the show notes, along with other resources and reading for this episode. We'll be back next week with the second part of the series on environmental protest and terrorism. Outside In is a public radio production. Your contributions really and truly help keep it going. If you want to support reporting like this, head to our website, outsideinradio.org donate. Special thanks to Phyllis Young and to everyone at the Lakota People's Law Project, especially Jesse Phelps and Daniel Nelson. Thanks also to the folks at Soundings Mindful Media for their archival tape of the American Indian Movement. This episode of Outside In was reported and produced by Justine Paradise. It was also mixed by Justine Paradise and Taylor Quimby. Taylor also edited this episode with help from Felix Poon, Jessica Hunt, and me, Nate Hedgie. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Music in this episode came from Poddington Bear, Skylines, Corey Gray, Cooper Cannell, and Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. (laughs) 